great having Lucas back this morning. Because he got in on Friday after, uh, I think, travel started there Wednesday. Um, so from Wednesday to Friday traveling. So I said, you know what? Maybe it would be better if someone else was teaching for you on Sunday. So you didn't have to explain to Amari why you got home Friday night and went immediately into the bedroom and said, I got to start studying. So that's why I get the opportunity to be with you. We are in the book of Luke again in chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, and last week we looked at what Jim was calling the perfect storm, verses 22 through 25, and it wasn't so much just that the perfect conditions had come about to bring that storm into existence, instead it was ultimately the perfect storm to teach the disciples about himself. It was the perfect opportunity for the disciples to learn more about Jesus, and through that powerful, life-threatening storm, Jesus revealed his power over all creation in a supernatural, undeniable way, showing his power to the disciples. He revealed his care for his people, that their lives were meaningful to him, that they weren't just throwaway and disposable. He cared for his people. And so the storm in 22 through 25 was the perfect storm to reveal Jesus. And this week, in 26 through 39, we come to another demonstration of Jesus' infinite power through an encounter with a demon-possessed man. And like the sea and the storm in our previous verses, this man was completely out of control. He was totally out of control. He was a, a threat to those around him. And like the storm, his interaction with Jesus would be powerful and instructive to anybody who's paying attention. It was almost like colliding weather systems in the convergence between Jesus and this man. There was a man bound under the control of Satan, crashing into the compassion and infinite power of Jesus. And again, the result is this opportunity to see Jesus' great powers, and at the same time, to have a warning of Satan's plans and his goals for us. And so I want to read through our verses this morning. We'll pray and we'll jump in and see how God might speak to us. We'll begin in verse 26. Then they, that is Jesus and the disciples, sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he had stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that they would, he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also who had seen it, uh, seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. 
Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we are so thankful to read a story where we know the end, we know how it all comes to pass, and it comes to pass with your victory, with the restoration of all things, with you fixing what is wrong and making all things right. And here we live in the middle of that, Lord, where we still experience the wrongness of, of a broken world through our choices and the activity of an active enemy. Lord, thank you that that victory isn't just for some point in the future far away from us, but Lord, it's right here and right now. Your power that we see in your word, it's for right here and right now. We pray that as we look at this um, passage this morning that you would teach us, that we'd hear your heart, that we'd understand the text and understand what you're saying to us, how to live it out, how to apply it. What does it actually mean for us today? And so be our teacher by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you and I are working through the chapter in kind of our church calendar, we stand a week removed from the events of last week, don't we? The feels like a week has passed since the storm hit the disciples and Jesus miraculously calmed the storm. But that's not actually how it went down. The gap between our Sunday mornings, it creates an artificial gap here in the text. It's not actually there. These things happen back to back. They follow one right on top of one another. And so as you're trying to picture these events, and I hope you do, I hope when you're reading the Bible, you're trying to picture it and imagine what it looked like and put yourself in that place and think through what was happening there. And as you do... Picture this story happening in the night or the very, very early morning. And I say that not to make it extra moody and a little bit spooky or ominous, but because that's what the Gospels indicate. Luke doesn't give us the time frame in his Gospel, but both Matthew and Mark, who also record the same story, they indicate that it was already evening before Jesus and the disciples got into the boat. And we're not told how long they have to fight through the storm, but it's safe to assume by the time we get to verse 26 that it's now either very late at night or very early in the morning. So don't, don't picture kind of a daylight, midday setting. Picture dark skies. Maybe the sun is beginning to come up. And with the life-threatening storm behind them, the disciples and those in the other boats, as we're trying to picture them, they're enjoying a more peaceful ride on the uh, way to the eastern side of Galilee. And I'll tell you what, we've had friends who've had boats and a boat on, a gla on glassy waters. It is chef kiss beautiful. I mean, just sitting there, the water is smooth, the boat is just cruising over it, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And I can imagine the disciples trying to catch their breath and get a little rest from the previous day of ministry. The previous day, if you were to scroll back through Luke, scroll back, which is what you do with an actual book, you scroll through it, sorry. If you were to scroll back through your pages, 
you'd see that the day of ministry was so full that at one point, Jesus' family couldn't even get to him through the crowd. It was so full of people. This wasn't just an off day where they decided to go for a boat ride. It was an incredibly full day of ministry. And so they're now trying to get a little peace from this. But at the same time, their minds have to be going through an incredible tug of war over what they've just seen in the storm, don't they? I mean, how close to death they had just been. These trained fishermen, people who are used to this lake, were fearing for their lives and figuring out their heart maybe pounding, adrenaline still kind of flushing from their body. And not only that, but they've got this question of who really is Jesus? The display of power that they've just seen has left them a little bit nervous, a little bit frightened. And I tell you, at this moment, it must have been a, a strange mixture in their minds at relief of having been saved from the storm and a holy fear of who Jesus had just revealed himself to be. I think the waters of the Sea of Galilee were now calm, but I don't think the minds of the disciples were anything like the waters they were sailing on. And, you know, just an observation as we're moving through, moments like these are helpful to us. Moments when Jesus takes the snow globe that is our life and he shakes it up a little bit and reframes how we see him and how we're perceiving his work in the world, helping us to see him in a new way. We need moments like that because our great God is unwilling to let us settle into a low view of him. He just won't let us, as his people, think of him in a low way. The vine dresser, our, our perfect shepherd, is unwilling to let us grow stagnant and stale. And he's always working to make us fruitful and productive, to take us from glory to glory. God is willing to shake up your life and my life if it allows us to see him more clearly, to grow closer to him. And gang, we need moments like that. We may not like the storm, we may not like the shaky feeling that a trial brings or that some revelation of God brings to our life, but we need to see Jesus more clearly. We need a high view of him, a clear view of him. And for the disciples, as they move out onto these boats, I can only imagine the storm that's still swirling in their minds as they now kind of move across these still waters. But little do they know that they are basically stepping out of the frying pan into the fire. There's one more encounter waiting for them as they reach the shoreline. They reach the, uh, the, they sail to the country of the Gadarenes in verse 26, which is opposite or the eastern side of Galilee. And when Jesus steps out onto the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. He wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but he lived in the tombs. Boy, what a shock this must have been for the disciples. Uh, despite the description that we can put together in the Gospels, I really think as I try to picture it, I have a pretty tame view of what this, was, uh, what this would have actually looked like. And in studying, I found it helpful to read and for us paraphrase, uh, paraphrase what an author named Stephen Cole, how he painted the scene. I'll just read it to you. It was either night or very early in the morning when Jesus and the disciples arrived at the other side of the lake after the storm. As they are stepping out on the beach, they hear a terrifying shriek. They look up to see a man running toward them, naked and manic. The man's body is covered with scars and caked with blood from fresh wounds. His uncut hair and untrimmed beard were matted, tangled, and filthy. 
He had a wild, demented look in his eyes. He reeked of body odor. And Luke doesn't describe what the disciples did. But the author continues to say, I can picture them scrambling back into the boats or looking for rocks or sticks to defend themselves. But in contrast, Jesus is going to step forward to heal and restore this man. Now that description, it helped me when I read it. It takes it kind of from this tame thing. I kind of picture a guy walking up. He's a little bit crazy. His hair's a little disheveled. And he walks up to Jesus, kind of like, rah. And that's not what happened. This was a, a crazy, life-threatening experience. This man was in deep, deep trouble. This was a, a terrible state in which to find the man. And this isn't the picture that we just read. It isn't the invention of some creative direct, uh, you know, writer trying to kind of expand on what the Scripture says. This is how the man is described in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Bible describes this man in a pitiful, tormented condition. And it's worth mentioning as a side note that Matthew 8 says there's actually two men here who greet Jesus and the disciples, but Mark and Luke, they focus only on one. And we're not sure why they make that editorial choice, why the Spirit leads them in that way, but apparently one man seems to feature more prominently in the story. And so as we're going through the morning, you can know in the back of your mind that there's two men involved, but really we'll just be talking around the one. And it's heartbreaking to consider the plight of this man. And we don't know how his life brought him to this place, but nonetheless, here he is. And his condition couldn't be more pitiable, could it? And I want to stop and consider the man for a moment and gather a couple of observations. First of all, Jesus' reaction to this man is powerful and it's instructive and it's a lesson for us to follow. Because as we've described, this man is absolutely broken by sin and the work of Satan in his life. Everything about him is repulsive, off-putting, and frightening. And yet, what does Jesus do? He walks towards this man. When the demons ask Jesus to leave, he has compassion on the man and heals him. Jesus walked towards this broken man. And gang, that is the heart of God lived out for us to observe and watch. God has always been one to reach out and walk towards sinners. To reach out and walk towards people who are broken by sin and the work of Satan in their lives. Remember, Jesus is the one who not only drew near the leper, but actually reached out and touched the man to heal him. Jesus is the one who took a deliberate trip through Samaria so that he could have a conversation who, with the woman who, because of her own choices, was now living on the fringes of society. Jesus is the one in John 4 who was without sin and could have picked up the stone to throw at the woman caught in adultery, but instead he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is the heart of God compassion, caring for those who are broken, not afraid to walk into the effects of sin. Jesus doesn't pull away from our brokenness. Our sin doesn't cause him to pull back in disgust, unwilling to get his hands dirty with the grime of our lives. From the very beginning, God has walked towards sinners. In the garden, when Adam and Eve first sinned and bring sin into God's very good creation, 
God doesn't speak judgment from a distance, unwilling to enter into the mess that they've just made. But what we see is God walks in the garden, not to judge them ultimately, but to restore relationship, to give them an opportunity to come back into fellowship with him. And when he finds them, what does he do? He covers their nakedness. When sin had just entered the world he created, God was already beginning to speak of the salvation he had in mind before the world began. The heart of God is to walk towards sinners. No matter how much brokenness our sin has brought into our lives, no matter how much the enemy has been able to bring the destruction he wants to bring, Again, this is not just a point of theology for us to recite at some point, to be quizzed next week when, you know, the, the quiz comes around. This is a point of practical application. Do you realize this is how God responds to you in your brokenness? You know, it's easy to see that, hey, we think that we've, this is kind of a room full of put-together people. Like, I, I kind of have my own little corner of brokenness, but everybody else in the room uh, doesn't. You know, everybody else in the room's kind of got it put together. Let me just peel back the curtain. We don't. <laughs> that includes the folks here on the stage. None of us have put it together. We're all in various stages of brokenness. We've all made terrible choices through our sin, and we bear the consequences of those things. And so the goodness of God to walk towards us is for every single person. God walks towards you even despite the choices you've made. There is nothing you have done or that has been done to you that will push God away from you. That he'll at some point say that's too much. It's one thing too much. It's a little bit too dirty for me to reach my hands into that person's life. God will never walk away from you. Today there is cleansing, there is healing, and there is forgiveness in Jesus. The transformation he brings to this demoniac is available for us today. The compassion that we see here is still the compassion he has for us today. God loves you. And he is walking towards you, no matter how broken you may feel. And as those who have received such tender mercy, we need to be those who show that same mercy. If God walked toward us in our brokenness, how can we walk away from others in theirs? If we've received such love, how can we possibly not show it to the people around us? And I admit it, it's really easy to talk around that. It's like, what a, what a great ideal to have. But in practice, it's difficult, isn't it? I'm not saying engaging with people in the messiness of their sin is an easy task. It's a difficult task. If I had been on the shore of Galilee with these disciples, I feel safe to say that my first reaction wouldn't have been compassion towards this man. Probably would have been a mixture of fear, of disgust, maybe even contempt for him. But what happens when I see my rabbi and my Lord step forward in compassion? What do I do with my first reaction then? Do I have to set it aside or will I hold on to it? Am I willing to walk out compassion with Jesus or will I stay back holding on to my fear and my pride? And I want to encourage us to be those who will live out the love of God, willing to show compassion to the broken folks around us because we realize that we're broken as well. Let's follow Jesus' example and engage with folks even when sin has made a mess of their lives in some capacity. 
in order to show his love for us, God had to step down into our world, didn't he? He had to leave heaven and set aside the glory that was his and walk into our broken world. And the same is true for us. Showing his love for others will mean stepping out of our comfort zone, leaving the things that feel good to us, and step into their world, whatever that might look like. I love Jesus' reaction to this man. It's a beautiful picture of how God responds to us and how he wants to resp- us to respond to one another. But as much of, uh, of if this man's broken condition allows us to see the heart of God, it also serves as a warning to us to show the vile heart of Satan. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we have a very spirit, real spiritual enemy who is bent on our destruction. We may not think about it often, but this man's condition helps us see Satan's desire for us in each of our lives. And we don't normally talk around this a bunch, but I think there's some value this morning in reminding us of what the enemy's goals are for us. He's not an indifferent enemy who's just passively opposed to us. No, that we have one who is actively seeking to steal, kill, and destroy us. And I think this man's condition helps illuminate Satan's goals for us. So that when his lies come into our life, we won't be quick to believe them. I want to stop and consider this man for a moment because we need to remember sin's cost and Satan's desire in our lives. Again, when it comes to sin, Satan is certainly not going to tell us the truth. And sadly, neither will our own nature. We have within us a fallen sin nature, the thing the Bible calls the flesh. And our flesh, it craves sin. And it absolutely rejects godliness. There is something within us that is inherently bent towards sin. And coupling that with an enemy who is actively seeking to destroy us, we need to be reminded that the thing we deep down desire and the thing being offered to us so freely is so very destructive. As we look at this man's life, because of Satan's work, we see that the man was driven to a place marked by death. He lived among the tombs. We see he was robbed of his dignity, running around naked, wounding himself. He was robbed of his sane thinking. He was driven away from his people. He was a threat to himself and a danger to others. And gang, this is exactly what sin does. Now, we may not see it to this extreme or to this end, but sin always does these type of things. Small scale and large scale, this is the effect of sin. This is what the enemy wants to do in our lives. Sin brings death. There's no way around it. From the very beginning, God told us that when sin enters, death will come with it. The moment that you eat of that, you will die. Sin always brings death. It's going to bring figuratively a death of our dreams, the hopes and aspirations that we all have for ourselves to a better, better place, It brings death to those things. When sin enters a relationship, it brings death. Dying and death are always the things that will mark our lives when we give place to sin. Again, this is true in a figurative sense, and it won't take long to see how it's true in a literal sense as well. Sin brings nothing but death, no matter what it promises. Sin robs us of dignity. The dignity that God designed us to have and wants us to have. Remember, it was sin that made the nakedness of Adam and Eve a shameful thing. While in contrast, it was God 
who covered them. It was sin that covered the woman caught in adultery with shame. And God created us in his image, but sin erodes and destroys the character that he wants us to have. Sin will never make us a better person. It always drags us down towards shame. And sin will twist our thinking. Just like this man had lost his capacity for rational thought, sin replaces the truth of God with lies until we're willing and able to call good bad and bad good. Romans 1 says that it's sin that caused those who thought they were wise to become fools. And as VBS was teaching our kids this week, when we reject the God of truth, we're left with just the father of lies. When we reject the truth of God, there's nothing left for us other than a lie. Sin corrupts our thinking. Sin will drive us from one another. Through sin, the only thing that we can do is wound one another. The only thing that sin will do in relationship is to break down trust, to plant seeds of bitterness, to erode the relationship that God builds us to have with him and with others. Sin won't preserve ultimately a relationship. The only outcome sin has in a relationship is to drive us apart, just like this man living apart from the people of his city and his family. And lastly, sin makes us dangerous. It makes us a threat to ourselves and to those around us. When we choose sin and listen to Satan's lies, there is no way that someone isn't getting hurt. And we think it'll be okay. Just like Satan uh, tried to tempt Eve. Is it really going to be as bad as God says? He, he said death, but, you know, I mean, like not that bad, right? And that's the lie he tries to sell us. It's not going to be that bad. And even if it is a little bit bad, you can contain it. You can kind of put a blast shield over that thing and keep that, the, the explosion contained. We think it'll be okay. We think we have a better way than God. We think that we can keep it under control this time. But sin always destroys us. And it always spills out onto the life of those around us. There is no way to contain the effects of sin on our own strength. There is no getting around it. We can't fall for the lie that we can contain the effects of sin. We've got it under control. I once heard it said that sin will always cost us more than we thought we'd pay. It always, will always take us further than we thought it would go. And it'll always keep us longer than we thought we'd stay. Sin is always greater than we imagine. Galatians chapter 6 puts it this way, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And Paul prefaces this, uh, this end result of sin by saying, Don't be deceived. Why? Because we will deceive ourselves. And there's an active enemy who's looking to deceive us, to say it's not going to be that bad. And so he has to say, don't fall for the lie. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. There is no exception. You go to your garden, you put corn in the ground, you're not going to come up with a tomato plant from that same seed. What you sow, you will reap. And it's true in the natural world, it's true in the spiritual world. Sin leads to death. James puts it this way. Each one of us is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gets birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to a tidy little package that you can keep totally contained. 
Not at all, right? When death is come forth, or excuse me, when sin comes forth, it brings death. There's no other end result for sin, no matter what our uh, fallen sin nature is telling us, no matter what Satan is trying to tell us, it will only and always bring death. And we need reminders like this. Because there is a constant soundtrack playing from our rotten hearts that says we know better than God. There's a constant soundtrack, just like there was for Eve, who saw the fruit that it looked good to eat and it thought she might make her wise. And there was a soundtrack within her that said, hey, this is a good thing. Internally, we have a, a soundtrack saying that we know better. Externally, there's a soundtrack that Satan constantly has playing in this world. Do what you want. Don't put yourself under God's oppressive authority. And the constant drone of these two messages becomes convincing. It just becomes the normal temperature in which we live. And we need reminders to tell us, no, this is only destruction. We need reminders of what sin will do if we give into it and what the devil wants to do to us if we'll fall for his life. I want to say, gang, look at this man's condition. Just stop and consider him for a minute. Just look at what sin has done to his life. Look at the destruction that Satan has been able to bring. And it may not be this pronounced in our life at this point, but this man is us if God were to remove his gracious restraints from our lives. There is not a single person in this room who couldn't be standing next to this man in his same condition if it weren't for the gracious restraint of God in our lives. And so let's look on him with compassion for him and fear for ourselves. To say, God, we want to be warned against the honey-sweet invitation of sin and Satan's sugar-coated lies. We want to be warned against these things because on the other side of that is only and always death. A man is a warning to us. His broken condition, it's a warning and an exhortation to us to stay away from sin. Well, as the man comes forward out of the kind of the pre-dawn sky, out of, or out of the pre-dawn light, he sees Jesus and he cries out in verse 28, falling down before him and with a loud voice says, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. The demons controlling this man have no question about who's in control of this situation. They have no question that Jesus is who he says he is. That he's God the Son in human flesh in their very presence. There is no question that he is truly Lord over them and Lord over all creation. This uh, interaction here is not some pitched battle between equals where we stand unsure of how this thing is going to uh, play out. This is the created, the demonic, recognizing the infant authority of the creator, Jesus. James chapter 2, verse 19 says that the demons believe and they tremble before Jesus. And in their plea to Jesus, whom they recognize for who he is, they have the audacity to ask that Jesus not torment them, the very thing that they've been doing to this man for a long time. And did you just see the wickedness of Satan even in that small detail? Don't torment us, Jesus, so that we can be free to torment others. Verse 29, 
For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds and was driven by the demons into the wilderness. Now the opening, as I try and picture the flow of events through this story, it's a little bit strange to me. And it seems like Jesus has already given the command that the demons were to leave the man. But even though the command is going to be unavoidable and they must obey, it seems that there's a little time allowed for this conversation to happen. There's a a little bit of kind of a pause before they're required to leave. And we're not told why. The gospel writers don't tell why. Luke just seems to indicate that there's this time delay. But my suspicion is that it gives Jesus the opportunity to reveal his power and authority to the disciples, to the man himself, to the people in that region, and eventually to us. When you take it all together, we have the confession of the demons that Jesus is who he is. We have their uh, sheer overwhelming number. And then ultimately, their powerlessness before Jesus. And all of these things together help us reveal Jesus' infinite power. You know, just as a common, you know, kind of parallel in our own life, sometimes we as parents or as adults will let a kid feel how heavy something is. And maybe you're carrying groceries into the house, or maybe you're pulling some lumber that you got from Home Depot, or just maybe it's like a suitcase you've packed for a trip, and you're carrying something heavy. And to your kids, it looks easy because you make it look easy. And so they say, how heavy is that? Can I try and lift that thing? And you let them lift it. When they do, they realize, oh, this thing is actually really, really heavy. It's beyond me. They get a sense of your strength when they realize how hard it is for them. And I don't know for sure that's what Jesus is doing here. But I think there might be some of what was at play in the storm where he allows this conversation to play out rather than immediately requiring the demons to leave so that we get a sense of his power. We get a sense of his strength when we see a little bit more of the scope of what he's doing. So we don't know for sure, but it seems to fit. Verse 30, we continue Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged that he would not command them to go into the abyss. So in this short delay before the demons are required to leave, Jesus asked the man his name, and they reply, Legion, because there are many. And the Roman legion that they're referring to, depending on kind of where it was in history, was anywhere from four to 6,000 soldiers. And we're not sure if this demonic horde was referring to themselves as legion because they were literally four to 6,000 demons, uh, or if it was just a figure of speech. We do know later from Mark that when they run into the pigs and when they take possession of the pigs, there were 2,000 or so pigs in that herd. So even if they're not 6,000 in number, it seems to me there's a massive amount of demons tormenting this man, which says a couple of things to us. It again reminds us of Satan's schemes, doesn't it? If he had poured this much energy into the man, it reminds us that Satan is not a fair fighter. He's not interested in fighting you in the way that you would fight him or fight someone else. He isn't a passive enemy, just casually taking things in as they come to him. Satan longs to steal, kill, and destroy. He has no regard for you, for your family, for your children, for those around you. And again, I say that to remind us that when we hear those sugar-coated lies of his, that God doesn't have our good in mind, and that we should just do what seems best to us, we know it's our destruction that he has in mind. 
He covers the lie. He hides the destructiveness of sin. And we need to remember that the person offering these things to us is not the angel of light he presents himself to be, but a destroyer. And seeing this man, it helps us remember Satan isn't just offering an alternative view to God's way of doing things. He's looking for a way to destroy us. And we can't fall for his invitation to sin. But the other thing that we see through the name of this demonic horde is more importantly and more encouragingly the power of Jesus. And if there's anything that you take away, yes, we want to be informed and not ignorant about the enemy who opposes us, but we want to come away with a high view of Jesus. Because again, we don't live in a battle where the outcome is uncertain. Tune in tomorrow because you don't know what's going to go down. No, we live in Jesus' victory. To put it into context, regardless of the number of the actual demons tormenting this man, they were too much for him. They were collectively too much for the physical chains that had once bound him. They, these demons proved to be too much for the entire community because they drove this man out of their presence. And yet those who were too much for the man, for the chains, for the community, were in absolute submission to Jesus. No contest whatsoever. This is not a contest of strength. This is not something where, the, again, the outcome is uncertain. From the moment Jesus has stepped on the scene, these demons, however many there were, they have recognized Jesus' absolute power, victory, and authority over them, no question. And that's a good reminder for us. Because we live in physical bodies, but we live our lives in the midst of an unseen spiritual world. We don't perceive it with our five senses, but around us, and more eternal than what we feel, is a spiritual world. And within that spiritual world, there are evil spiritual beings actively seeking our destruction. But they are powerless against Jesus. This demonic horde is not even allowed to enter the pigs without Jesus' permission. Now, to be fair, there's a lot that we don't understand about what Paul describes as principalities, powers, the rulers of darkness of this age, and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. But we can know for certain that Jesus' victory is sure. There may be a lot of blanks in our understanding, but we do know the important fact that Jesus' victory is sure. That through the cross and through his character as creator, he has made a public spectacle over the enemy. His authority is supreme, and his infinite power is unmatched no matter how many are in opposition to him. The Apostle John, who was presumably there to witness the event, would later write, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, that is, the spiritual hosts of wickedness, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. As we've talked around spiritual warfare and the reality of a spiritual enemy, the supremacy of Jesus has to be one of our takeaways. There just simply isn't any comparison between Jesus, who is infinite God, and Satan, who is a finite creation. There's just no comparison. And so these demons, verse 31, they beg Jesus that he would not command them to go into the abyss. 
The demons certainly understand who's in control in this situation. Like James says, they tremble at his very presence. They know Jesus is the absolute authority, and they're powerless to do anything apart from what he allows them to do. And so they beg him not to be thrown into the abyss before their time. This is kind of an interesting thing, and your mind could run down a few rabbit trails if you want to. I just want to briefly talk around this. I'm not going to pursue it long. But this abyss that they're referring to, it primarily comes from the, uh, from the book of Revelation. This is uh, what we know is primarily fine there. And it appears to be, for lack of a better word, a jail of sorts for the demonic. You can find it in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. John records that he saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit. That's just the word translated abyss here in Luke. And a great chain in his hand. He lay hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit, again the abyss, and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. The demonic will be held there in this abyss until they're given one more opportunity to test mankind, and then they'll be thrown into the lake of fire, which is a a different description for what we consider to be hell. Interestingly, in the story of the sheep and the goats, Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 41, that hell, or this lake of fire, which is the ultimate destination for the demonic, it was not created for man, but importantly, listen, for the devil and his angels, When you and I think of hell and that place of destruction and judgment, it was not created for those of us who are made in God's image. It wasn't created for mankind. In fact, God went to great lengths to see that no one would have to go there. He provided a way for man to escape what had been created for Satan and his angels. God takes no delight when a person perishes and goes into this place of destruction. We see God's heart across the scriptures. But I love how his desire for our salvation is expressed in Ezekiel 18. God says there, I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. God's heart has always been to make a way of escape, to find salvation and forgiveness of our sins. And so these demons know the abyss was their due, and they beg Jesus not to go there. Verses 32 through 33, now a herd of many swine was feeding there in the mountain, and they begged him that he would permit them to enter, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. At Jesus' words, these demons are allowed to enter the pigs, and immediately we see their nature displayed, don't we? The demons run the pigs right to their death. Satan's plans and desires couldn't be any more clearly demonstrated here. It's bent on merciless destruction as we've seen. And those who were in this area, when they saw what had happened, they fled and told it to the city and in the country. And then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid." They also had seen it, told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Now, understandably, when these pigs go running headlong into the water, what had uh, previously been a very predictable herd, uh, when they went raging to their death, those who were watching them were completely shocked. 
I mean, this was absolutely unheard of. This was completely out of the ordinary. This was something supernatural. And so they book it. They run off to tell anyone, city folk and country alike. And bit by bit, those who began to hear the story, they began to make their way to the shoreline and see for themselves what had happened. And when they arrive, they see this notorious, dangerous man sitting peacefully at the feet of Jesus. And those who had witnessed this whole thing take place were almost certainly there in the midst of the crowd, the center of the crowd, pointing to Jesus and saying, it was, it was him. He's the one who made this whole thing happen, telling the gathering crowd that Jesus was responsible. And just as with the calming of the sea and storm, those who observed were frightened by what they observed. Because this was all too much to understand, right? It didn't make sense. There was nothing in their worldview or their experience to say this is the sort of outcome that should happen. It didn't fit with any sort of box that they were using to organize their worldview. This was crazy and outside of the norm, and they were fearful. In verse 37, then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. Sadly, their reaction to this incredible miracle is to ask Jesus to leave. And it's hard to read that. It's hard to think through the, the restoration of this man and the demonstration of a power that's clearly good and then that the result would be to push that away. You know, perhaps it felt easier when confronted with a power like this, to just simply ask it to leave rather than to stop and think about what it meant, to actually process what had just happened. It was easier just to push it away and keep moving forward. Maybe they couldn't look past the financial loss of the herd and see the restoration of this man. But whatever their reasons were, they asked Jesus to leave rather than embracing him and his work in their community. And Jesus sadly answers their prayer, and he leaves. He and all the disciples, they climb back into the boat, and they leave. What a warning this is. What a warning this is. God will not force himself into our lives. If he is working in your heart and life right now, don't push that away. If he is orchestrating events to reveal himself, don't be like these people and stall and say, come back when it's easy for me to understand all this stuff. God might work a miracle in our life or prove somehow beyond a shadow of a doubt his existence, and yet we just walk away from him. There was a moment in our lives to teach us and to draw near to him, but we walked away from it. As a pastor, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this happen. People come in to talk with someone on the pastoral team. A frightening health diagnosis has come into their life. Maybe their marriage, something has just come to light, and now things are imploding, and they realize they are desperately in need for a work of God. And God shows up and begins to show himself to be real. He works in their health. He begins restoring their marriage. And as things get settled, as the heat dies down, they just go back to normal. There's no transformation. There's no turning away from their old life. God has put a powerful display of his goodness in their life, provided them with a pivotal moment, and they missed it. They walked away from it. 
And it's easy to look at them, kind of faceless group, but we also need to consider we're capable of doing this too. We can be guilty of pushing God's work away. There's a moment where God is calling us towards him, but we're not let, willing to let the status quo change. We're not willing to let things get shaken up to obey him. Or maybe we're just plain frightened of what obedience might look like. And so in our fear, like these folks, we say, no, I, I'm just, I can't do that. I won't do that. It's, it's too much to consider. Or maybe like Jonah in the Old Testament, we just have bold disobedience. We know God's word in our life. We know it's the right thing to do, and we just say no. Choose to walk a different way. But whatever the case, I hope that we see the people of this region and their wrong response to Jesus and we're warned by it. Rather than just saying, those people, what a silly choice they made. Who would do that? Who would say no to Jesus when we're doing that in our own lives? We have this strange phenomenon where we as a people are able to look past the plank in our own eye to see a speck in someone else's. And we need someone to say, look, yes, the speck is there. They're doing the wrong thing. But bro, you've got a plank in your own eye. And so we can't look at these folks without wondering, is there a plank in my eye? Am I doing this very same thing? Am I pushing Jesus away when he's calling change in my life? Verses 38 and 39, Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell the great things that God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Wonderfully, there's one exception to those who are asking Jesus to leave, and that is reasonably the man who had been healed. He rightly wants to be wherever Jesus is at. I mean, why would you ever want to leave the side of the one who has done so much for you? But strangely, this is the one prayer request in our our, uh, story where Jesus refuses. He said yes to the demons to enter the pigs. He says yes to the crowd to leave their area. But to this man who'd been restored, he actually answers and says no. And it's not because he can't stand to be around the man, like somehow he still smells bad and just, I just can't get involved with that mess. Rather, Jesus has a plan for this individual. Jesus had a different plan for this man. Jesus would be leaving the area, but this man would stay. Jesus was a stranger in these parts, but this man was a local. And now this local boy has a story to tell. And the people may have, of the region may have asked Jesus to leave, but this man would stay in their midst as a constant reminder of Jesus' power and compassion, someone who always had a story to tell that Jesus is good. And I love this. Jesus not only saved and delivered this man, but he also gave him work to do. He gave his life purpose and meaning. And so it is with each one of us. Yes, we are saved into an amazing relationship with God that is apart from our works. Salvation is not a work that we have done so that none of us can boast. It's a free gift of God. But that relationship isn't without purpose. God saves us for the works that he created beforehand that we should walk in them. Your life has purpose this morning. You're not just saved to sit on a shelf somewhere, some sort of trophy of God's grace collecting dust, but of no little use. Your life has a purpose. You were saved for a reason. 
And sometimes that purpose will be to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And for others, and for other seasons, his purpose might be like this man, to stay put and be a witness right where we're at. And I'll tell you what, it often takes just as much faith to stay put in an area as it does to go. Maybe the other side of the fence looks so green to us right now. If I was just over in that environment, in that place, if I just left this town or this job or this state, I would be in a much more fruitful place for God. Maybe we're just bored. I've been here for so long. I'm just looking for a change. I'm just itching for something to change. But whatever the case, if God is telling you to stay put, like he told this man, plant yourself and be fruitful there. By the Spirit, be a witness of Jesus right where you're at. Let the people around you know the great things that God has done for you and the great things in his heart for them. Be a witness right where God is calling you to be. Well, as we wrap up this morning, this story continues to show us there is never a dull moment in the life of Jesus. After this exhausting time of ministry earlier in the chapter, there's a perfect opportunity to teach the disciples through the storm. He's barely on the shoreline before a man tormented by Satan needs his compassionate deliverance. And as we've seen through this interaction, there's a whole lot we can learn. Whether it's the plans that Satan and sin have for us, whether it's the supremacy of Jesus, his compassion that we need to show, whatever the case, I pray that the word of God would speak to us this morning and that we'd be changed by it. Let's close in prayer this morning, and the worship team would come up and lead us in the last few songs. Lord, we just pause before your word. I know it can be easy for us to quickly close our Bibles, to tuck away our notes, and get ready for the very next thing, and we haven't stopped to actually let something settle in. We haven't stopped to let the mirror of the word really examine our lives and to see what it is we observe when we look into the mirror of your word. And so, Lord, we just want to pause and stop before you this moment and let, let you settle things, let you kind of sift through all that we've read and heard this morning and What is it that we need to take away? What lesson, what bit of truth and application is there for us specifically? I want to give room for your Holy Spirit to apply these things to us this morning.